Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The Trump administration is proposing cuts to the food stamp program, and that would also mean the elimination of free school lunches for hundreds of thousands of impoverished school children. And it would mean billions of dollars in losses for grocery stores as well as California farmers. After all, they're the nation's main supplier of fresh fruits and vegetables. How to thwart crime on California's farms. The Calusa County Sheriff's Department has a plan, and it involves a smartphone app to make crime reporting quicker and easier. We look at the state of farm bankruptcies in California and why it isn't as bad here as it is in other farm areas across the country. All that, extended weather and crop reports on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Trump administration and USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue have a plan to rein in who's eligible for the SNAP program. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The USDA's Rod Bain has more. A loophole that has allowed millionaires to enroll in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program would soon be closed under a proposed rule published in the Federal Register Tuesday. As Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue explained Monday. At the USDA, we're taking action to strengthen SNAP by reforming what's called broad-based categorical eligibility. This loophole allows our states to take participants receiving TANF benefits, the program run by HHS that provides cash and other benefits to individuals, and make them automatically eligible to participate in SNAP. Under the proposed rule, SNAP and TANF automatic eligibility would be limited to households receiving substantial ongoing TANF-funded benefits designed to help families move toward self-sufficiency. Going forward, those who receive nominal TANF benefits will need to qualify for SNAP in the same way that everyone else must qualify. Comments are being accepted for the proposed rule for a 60-day period via www.regulations.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Although the Trump administration wants to emphasize some millionaires may be affected by this, the pain goes a lot deeper than that. According to the Modesto Bee, that change could restrict access to free school lunches for 265,000 children. And here in California, about 3.2 million children use free school lunches. That according to the California Department of Education. Under the proposal, about 3.1 million people would lose access to the Supplemental Nutrient Assistance Program, SNAP, which provides money for food to low-income Americans. Commonly, it's called food stamps. For further clarification on this, here's Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services, Brandon Lips. He explains the USDA's intent behind that proposed rule. There are 43 state agencies that currently utilize broad-based categorical eligibility. And so therein, there are state agencies that do not utilize broad-based categorical eligibility. So you have people throughout this country being treated differently with regard to which state they're in, about whether they're subject to 130% income test or higher income tests in other states. This rule makes sure that that's consistent across the state agencies that run the SNAP program. Congress is not required to act. This rule is specific specifically within the discretion that Congress granted to the secretary in administering categorical eligibility. That's always been the intent of categorical eligibility. When you receive a eligibility determination of one benefit, that's the same as another program that you should also receive that benefit. But that people ought not be receiving benefits who have not gone through an eligibility determination. And that's what this rule looks to clean up. Well, that cleared it right up, didn't it? 
Let's put it into terms we can understand. The typical gross income limit for a SNAP family is 130% of the federal poverty level, and that's about $27,000 for a family of three. Their income has to be less than that. Here in California, if you're part of the CalFresh food program, that same family of three would have a poverty level of $41,000, obviously because of the higher expenses it takes to live in California. The USDA proposal would knock that 41000 down to 27000 which means a lot of people would no longer qualify for food stamps. But it's not just hundreds of thousands of children losing their school lunch. It's a hit to the grocery stores as well. Politico reports the plan would mean grocery retailers would lose $3 billion annually in sales. Representative Josh Harder, who represents Turlock, called the proposal, which will have a 60-day comment period before the USDA decides to act on it, a complete disaster. About 63% of the children in Harder's district around Modesto use free or reduced school lunch costs. He told the Modesto Bee, quote, literally thousands of children in the Central Valley rely on the school lunch program just to get something to eat. This garbage proposal would rob them of the nutrition they need to stay healthy and get a good education. Governor Gavin Newsom also chimed in on Twitter criticizing the proposal. He says this rule would take food away from working families. It'll prevent kids from getting school meals, and it makes it more difficult for the states to help. California generally represents roughly 10% of the national SNAP caseload, but it's not clear at this point if Californians would represent 10% of the individuals that would be affected by the proposal. A similar policy was proposed in a House Republican version of the Farm Bill last Congress, but that was rejected. The USDA estimates that this newly proposed rule would save $2.5 billion per year and strip benefits from 3.1 million people. Vice President Mike Pence paid a visit to the Kings County farm of Doug and Julie Freitas, and there was a panel of speakers that touted the benefits of the proposed United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's the one intended to replace NAFTA. Many of the farmers there had their ideas, and their ideas were mostly, we need to get this passed. And that included Shannon Douglas and Sean Crook. They're the California Farm Bureau Federation's first and second vice president. You've got to reach out to your members and contact them and make sure your member understands the importance of this agreement and that we, we need to vote on it, we need to move this forward, and this matters. This trade agreement passing is what's best for California agriculture, and if you're a member that has California agriculture in your district, you need to do this for your constituents and not worry about the other politics that might be involved. And the hosts at the event, Doug and Julie Freitas, let everybody know how they felt as well. It encourages us to keep, yes. keep fighting and actually take a more active part yes. in helping with the political side and yeah. and speaking out, Get I mean we're all, uh, we're a minority in California. Yeah. I would hope it impacts them greatly to know that. Yeah. You know, there's years we don't make any money. A lot of years, and I hope those years this will encourage them to yeah, believe there's up. hope. The vice president urged the farmers and others in attendance to call their congressional representatives and ask them to ratify that deal. Seeking action on a pending trade deal, California's farmers and ranchers conducted a fly-in to Washington, D.C. last week to urge congressional ratification of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that the farmers visited the California congressional delegation asking members to support the USMCA. Supporters say the agreement would strengthen relations with two key markets for California's agricultural exports. 
It's sometimes hard to get any six people in different sectors of agriculture to agree on anything, but at a House Ag subcommittee hearing Tuesday, we heard representatives of various livestock sectors, beef, pork, chicken, turkey, sheep, and eggs, tell lawmakers they do want two things. First, ratification of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Approve the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Passage of USMCA. The passage of USMCA is absolutely critical. The ratification of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. And the panel agreed also on needing a workable guest worker program. Existing guest worker programs target only seasonal on-farm labor, and we need workers year-round. We need visa reform so pig farmers have access to a sustainable supply of labor throughout the year. It is time to resolve the immigration debate for the good of rural America's economy. Reject calls for failed policy. And so it went. Panel members also said they would like to see more federal resources going for preventing and responding to animal disease threats. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Here's USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey taking a look at the national weather picture for the week ahead. Looking ahead to week two, this covers the time period from July 30th through the first five days of August. We are expecting a return to very warm conditions as we move to the end of July and early August. Nearly all of the country expecting near or above normal temperatures. The greatest likelihood of those hot conditions will be from the Midwest into the Northeast. So yes, another round of heat coming for some key production areas of the Midwest. In terms of rainfall patterns from July 30th to August 5th, we are expecting a mixed bag, generally drier than normal conditions across the plains and the Rockies, but we are expecting near or above normal precipitation in most areas from the Mississippi Valley to the East Coast and also in parts of the Southwest. Here in the southern Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valleys, it looks like that weather period through August 5th is looking actually pretty good for us. With typical late July and early August August temperatures. Highs will be in the low 90s, overnight lows upper 50s to low 60s, and plenty of sun. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, corn and black-eyed beans continue to mature. Cotton is being irrigated and cultivated. In Fresno County, alfalfa and safflower continue to be harvested. The sorghum is growing well. Post-harvest pruning and mechanical topping was ongoing in fruit crops. Some older stone fruit orchards were being pushed out after harvest. Stone fruit orchards were irrigated. Apricot, peach, plum, pluots, and nectarine harvest continues. Persimmons and olives continue to mature. The grapes are growing well as the harvest began. Irrigation and mechanical vineyard maintenance is ongoing. Valencia and navel oranges were being harvested. Valencia oranges were gassed to improve their color. Citrus groves were pruned and hedgerowed. Some citrus orchards were pushed out in preparation for new plantings. The nut orchards continue to be irrigated. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachios were developing well. Almond hull split was reported in some locations. In Tulare County, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, cucumbers, and squash were being harvested. Tomatoes continue to develop in the Central Valley with later-than-normal ripening. Pasture land continues to dry. Some range grasses were burned by wildfires. Foothill rangeland and non-irrigated pasture remain in fair to good condition. Water was hauled to livestock in some locations. Sheep are grazing in fallowed fields. The bees, they're active in melon and sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 
Crimes of theft, vandalism, and trespassing plague rural California's farms. Recently, the California Farm Bureau Federation talked with Jake Driver. He's a Calusa County farmer, and he told them about the item that is number one on thieves' hit list on his farm. We have a big issue with fuel theft. Probably our biggest issue in this county right now as far as crime. Farmers and sheriff's deputies use a number of techniques to combat rural crime, combining new technology with tried and true information sharing. Mike Bradwell is a Calusa County Sheriff's Sergeant, and he told the California Farm Bureau Federation about some of the easy ways for farmers in Calusa County to report thieves. Calusa County, while we don't have really huge issues, we do have the common issues with farms and agricultural-related crimes. We have thefts of fuel, thefts from vehicles. Um, here at Drivers Farms, they've increased their security with surveillance cameras. They work with us with communicating. The big thing we want to put out to the farmers is we need communication. We need the information, whether you think it's small or big, we need that phone call. That lets us know what's out there. It helps us build cases and helps us work on what we need to work on to build that big case to be able to put people behind bars. So if you get on our smartphone app, it has where you can select what, where, comments. You can be anonymous. You can give your information. You can download actually a photograph to the app. It sends directly to us. It allows the farmers to work either from their tractors, from their trucks, communicate with us and not really take away from their day and get the information we need to move forward with the case. Recently signed state legislation creates a new crime category, grand theft of agricultural property, and it invests the fines collected from those crimes in to rural crime prevention programs. For farmers and ranchers, USDA has a new online tool to help them make sense of loan offerings and figure out which loan is best for them. It's actually, uh, in my mind, a very valuable tool for farmers, ranchers that are looking at obtaining credit through Farm Service Agency, whether that's for purchasing equipment, whether that's purchasing land, and maybe folks looking for credit that are new to the agency. That was Farm Service Agency Administrator Richard Fordyce. They can go into the farm loan discovery tool and folks can access that through farmers.gov slash fund and that'll bring up the farm loan discovery tool. Simply hit the start button and producers can start to go through that and it will ask five questions. Your answers determine which questions you are asked next so you don't waste time. It should streamline the process and it will create an environment where potential borrowers have more knowledge when they walk into the office or have a person-to-person -person visit. So why did USDA develop this new tool? Borrowing money can be intimidating, and I think credit is critically important to agriculture. And so I think the goal in developing the tool was to, you know, maybe reduce that intimidation a little bit by answering these questions kind of in the privacy of your own home or privacy of your own business. It also helps potential borrowers know what to expect. What kind of documentation do I need? How can I prepare at home or how can I prepare before I go into the office to bring the proper and correct documents to support my loan application? He says if farmers are better prepared ahead of time, it cuts down on work that USDA employees have to do, which is good for both sides. Can we shorten the process? Can we get to a point of getting a loan closed in a shorter period of time? The new Farm Loan Discovery Tool helps farmers navigate through different types of USDA farm loans, including for farm operating or farm ownership. So compared to this time last year, FSA has seen an 18 percent 
increase in the amount it's obligated for direct farm ownership loans. And as we remember, the 2018 Farm Bill increased lending limits on all of our loans. So, you know, our anticipation would be we'll see a higher volume of dollars loaned out through our various programs. There are $9.3 billion available in FY19 for FSA farm loan programs. As of June 30th, $4.4 billion had been obligated. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Back in May, the USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service had its California Almond Objective Measurement Report. And back in May, they thought California's almonds would come out to be 2.5 billion pounds in 2019. Well, they've revised that forecast downward. Now their estimate is for 2.2 billion pounds, and that's down 3.5% from the actual 2018 crop of 2.28 billion pounds. According to the Capitol Press, the objective report is the industry's official crop estimate, and it's based on data closer to harvest. Plus, it's based on actual nut counts on trees versus phone interviews with growers for that subjective forecast last May. And according to that report, the average nut set per tree is 4,667. That's down almost 18% from the 2018 almond crop. The reason for that downward count, according to industry experts, it was that less than ideal weather we had back in the spring. California produces 82% of the world's almonds. On Capitol Hill last week, a congressional hearing centering basically on the integrity of the organic label. Under Secretary of Agriculture Greg Ibaugh telling lawmakers that we consumers in this country bought a record $52.5 billion worth of organic products last year, up 6% from the year before. This includes 1,000 new farms that were certified in the U.S. last year. This growth has been supported by USDA's development of clear and enforceable organic standards. Now, some argue that the standards are too tough that they may actually be slowing down the entry of new farms into organic production, particularly that rule that mandates three years conversion time to go from a conventional farming to certified organic farming. Three years in which you as a farmer would produce organically but have to deal with possible impacts of that. Which might include decreased yields, but you don't have the ability to take advantage of the increased prices. That's an economic challenge for many of our small and mid-sized farmers. And maybe is one of the reasons why we don't see more producers entering the organic marketplace. But Dr. Jennifer Tucker with the National Organic Program told the panel, in this case, at least so far. There has not been interest in lessening those transition standards. There is interest in enforcing all of the organic standards, so all farmers here and those in other countries who want to sell their products here all play by the same rules. The Agriculture Department has trained certifiers that go around checking on organic growers, making sure they're not labeling their conventionally produced products as organic so they can sell them for the premium organic price, essentially cheating consumers and their fellow farmers who are following the rules. Of course, organic rules and standards dictate that products have to be produced with no chemical pesticides, weed killers, growth hormones, etc., and no use of genetically modified inputs and transgenics. But we've seen new technology evolve that includes gene editing that accomplishes things in shorter periods of time that can be done through a natural breeding process. And 
I think there is the opportunity to consider whether it is appropriate for some of these new technologies that include gene editing to be eligible to be used to enhance organic production and to have drought-resistant, disease-resistant varieties available. But there is already a fierce debate on this one and other aspects of organics, such as questions of whether livestock animals have to be housed or kept in a certain way in order to be sold as organic. IBA says setting standards for what is organic and what isn't is a really tough job. It includes balancing everybody's ideas of what they think organic means. He says the main thing in all of this is that we consumers need to know that when we shell out extra money for so-called called certified organic products that uh, we're really getting organic that we can trust once again. The integrity of the organic label. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. On the opening weekend of the California State Fair in Sacramento, members of the 4-H, FFA, and Grange clubs had a great weekend. They participated in the highest grossing sale of champions in more than 10 years. It's a livestock auction, and during that prestigious event, buyers were able to bid on the best steers, lambs, goats, and rabbits that California has to offer. The total gross of the sale this year was more than $274,000. That's the highest since 2008 and the second highest ever. The sale of champions is a longtime tradition at the California State Fair. The winners of the livestock competitions are auctioned off to raise money for the youth who have dedicated hours of effort into raising those animals. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal highlighted the economic plight of farmers in the Midwest. Throughout that region, U.S. farmers are filing for Chapter 12 bankruptcy protection at levels not seen for at least a decade. For example, the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin had double the bankruptcies in 2018 compared with 2008. In states from North Dakota to Arkansas, bankruptcies swelled 96%. The year-to-year -year change in Midwest bankruptcy filings has soared 45%. Meanwhile, here in the West, California and six other Western states have seen a decline in bankruptcy filings of 41%. Why the big difference? We're talking with John Newton. He's the chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. And John, what accounts for this difference? If you look at just California agriculture, it's it's so much more diverse than the Midwest. When you think about Illinois, Iowa, you know, Iowa has a lot of hog operations, a lot of a lot of poultry egg laying facilities, but probably 60% of the land area in Iowa and Illinois is in corn and soybean production. And you look at what those prices have done in recent years. I mean, they're coming off of a record high price environment in 2012. The only thing that's really helped some of those guys is, is that they've had really fantastic yields. So if they've got the economies of scale, they can you know spread their costs around more acres. But overall, the, the pricing for those corn and soybean and, and wheat to some extent are a lot lower than they used to be. And I think that's what's driving bankruptcies higher uh, in the Midwest. And you think about upper Midwest, you got a lot of dairies, northeast, a lot of dairy. And you're seeing a, a pretty significant exodus of dairy farms as well. Are the tariff battles playing any part of this? You no, know, it's, it's a combination of factors. We're, you're looking at, you know, net farm income has been 50% lower than what it was in 2013 uh, for five straight years. And so I think what happened is folks have burned through cash. They've gotten creative in ways to cut costs and be more efficient. You know, they've had to take out, you know, more debt, uh, more lines of credit. And, and at some point in time, kind of run out of options. And that's where uh, Chapter 12 is a, is a bankruptcy option for farmers and uh, ranchers that allows them to repay that debt on a seasonal basis, really reflecting 
the cyclical nature of agricultural harvesting and, and marketing. Certainly the California farming situation has a lot more diversity than that in the Midwest. Would it also be a case of oh, many of the crops we grow here are high value crops, especially the nut crops, pistachios, almonds, and walnuts? Without a doubt, but, but many of the commodities across all of U.S. agriculture have seen uh, price pressure downward in recent years. Uh, you think profitability on almonds is not what it was uh, several years ago. California is the largest dairy state. Milk prices there in California have been depressed for a number of years. I think it's the diversity and the high value crops, especially the fruit and vegetables, that, that have led to uh, a decrease in the bankruptcies there in California. California bankruptcies in 2018 uh, there were 18 filings. Uh, that's down from 27 filings in 2017. Uh, one of the other things to think about with Chapter 12 is there's a, uh, a debt limit. So if you have a debt level over $4.2 million, you cannot qualify for Chapter 12 uh, bankruptcy. So while it might be a small subset of farms across the country that have debt levels higher than that, uh, it's going to it's going to be some operations that are larger in scale, maybe have a lot of real estate debt, maybe producing some high value commodities that may see themselves with with debt levels that prevent them from using Chapter 12. And then they have to visit uh, other options like Chapter 11, uh, Chapter 7, for example. Yeah, you mentioned land value. And with increasing land values here in California, obviously that would give farmers here a bit more equity to work with when it comes to securing loans. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's one of the things. Agricultural land values uh, have been pacing pretty well with, with inflation. I think total agricultural asset values in 2018 were, were over $3 trillion dollars. Compare that to the 80s when it was less than $775 billion. So it's a much different uh, balance sheet, farm financial balance sheet today uh, than what we saw you know, 30 years ago. But certainly uh, we're starting to see some cracks, uh, the bankruptcies elevating in some of these areas that, that have more price exposure to this downturn in commodity prices uh, is, one, is one key uh, piece of evidence. Chapter 12 filings are, are really geared for farming, fishing, and those with a lot of seasonal income, is it? Explain a little bit about Chapter 12 for those who don't know. Yeah, so Chapter 12, again, provides that flexibility to, to make a repayment schedule uh, seasonally. Uh, and, and for family farmers, you have to have a debt level that's less than about 4.1, 4.2 million. Uh, that number does get adjusted for inflation. Uh, the fishery side has a, a smaller debt lev level uh, of around $2 million, I believe. Uh, but it's the flexibility to repay seasonally that really makes Chapter 12 uh, a good option for folks that are considering bankruptcy for their business. And when it comes to tracking these numbers, I would imagine Chapter 12 is an easier mark to follow versus Chapter 11 or Chapter 7. Well, all the, the U.S. courts does report, you know, the, the bankruptcy filings by chapter, by district, which is then broken out by state. They do that uh, on a quarterly and annual basis. Uh, the challenge is, is how do you really get into it and know if that was a, a wheat farmer or, you know, a diversified you know, fruit and vegetable operation or a dairy operation. There's no way to really tease that out of the information from the U.S. courts uh, to, to, to really get that level of detail. You almost have to go to the district courts and look at the individual uh, case statistics. I know your outlook for the country is there's going to be more pressure on farmers uh, regarding debt. Can you break out California in particular? What is the uh, economic future for California's farms? Well, I, I think, you know, you, you look, you know, some of the big commodities that are produced there in the state of California have faced some significant headwinds. Uh, you think about uh, nuts, for example, 
Uh, we export a lot of those products, and, and they're facing some tariffs. Some of their larger markets, you think about dairy products facing tariffs, both Canada, Mexico, and China. A lot of the dairy that's exported is exported you know, off the western coast, out of the Pacific Northwest, and out of California to Asia. Uh, so you know, there's certainly some uncertainties in California as well as the rest of the country uh, in, in farming and ranching. Add to it the regulatory situation that farmers find themselves in, the uncertainty around immigration. It's going to be a, a very challenging environment uh, in 2019. I think we could go a long way to turn around farm income if we can come to some sort of resolution on agricultural trade. And for California farming in particular, the wild card is always water. Will they have enough? You're exactly right. I think when Mother Nature's your business partner, as she is in agriculture, you know you never know what risks uh, may lie ahead of you. John Newton is the chief economist for the, for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, thanks for a few minutes of your time. You got it. Thanks for having me on. It was back in April that Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue announced findings from the 2017 Census of Agriculture. Complete count, all of our U.S. farmers, ranches, and the people who operate them. And we've got more detailed information in this census. Now, some may think this was the only release related to this once-every-five-year collection of data capturing a snapshot of agriculture across the country. But Joe Parsons of the agency that oversees the Census of Agriculture, USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service, says that was only the beginning. One of our most recent releases was data by congressional districts, which is very informative for those that want to sort of share and make clear what's going on by congressional district. We've recently released data on the state and county profiles, which detail all 3,000 and some counties in the United States and every state in the Union. In fact, USDA NAS staff remain hard at work on various 2017 Census of Agriculture series and sub-reports focused on specific topics, reports that will be released throughout the next year or so. For instance, coming out in late July, a Census of Ag report on watersheds. It's going to focus on data that sort of lays out uh, major watersheds in the United States, and it'll tabulate all the data and all those farms that lie within each of those watersheds and the profile of all of those. And it's comparable back to the prior census periods as well. Parsons adds data collection and study is underway for another water-related census-based report. The Irrigation Water Management Survey that's been going on, it's a follow-on to the Census of Agriculture. So everyone who indicated that they irrigated during the census year, we went back out to and we did a questionnaire that really dove into irrigation water management practices, how farmers are stewards of the valuable resource that's water. And we'll be publishing those data in November of this year. Other 2017 Census of Agriculture data reports, such as the Census of Aquaculture and national and state data snapshots on specialty crops, are also scheduled for release by NAS before the end of this year. Details on any and all Census of Agriculture-related reports and releases can be found online at www.nass.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California Farm Bureau Federation recently went down to the Merced area to talk about groundwater recharge with Brian Kelly. Brian is with the Merced Irrigation District. MID replenishes groundwater in multiple ways. One of those methods is through the use of groundwater recharge basins. We're right outside of the town of Winton, California at the Cressy Recharge Basin. This basin was constructed in 2011 after several years of pilot testing. It's a 20-acre basin designed to replenish the groundwater about 50 acre feet per day. This is one of MID's two groundwater recharge basins, the other being the El Nido recharge basin. 
So overall, MID replenishes the groundwater about 140,000 acre feet per year on average through various activities, including groundwater recharge basins. And we operate conjunctively so that in times of drought, we supplement our surface water supplies with groundwater. And in times of plenty, we replenish the groundwater through projects such as this. Many areas of the Central Valley are very conducive to recharge efforts of the groundwater. Research is still underway on these projects by the University of California at Davis. Well, I became a big fan of wasp when I was standing near a tomato plant a few years ago and I was staring at a tomato hornworm. And then all of a sudden, this paper wasp showed up, landed on the tomato worm, took a big chunk out of it and flew off. I applauded as that paper wasp flew away. And then a little bit later, I saw a yellow jacket do exactly the same thing. A lot of people are afraid of yellow jackets and paper wasps, but actually they can be beneficial wasps. There's another wasp out there as well that may have you a little ticked off, but it's actually a good guy as well. They're called mud daubers. What's a mud dauber? How does it differ from a yellow jacket or a paper wasp? Let's find out. We're talking with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Rachel, what exactly is a, a, a mud dauber and how does it differ from those two other wasps? So a uh, mud dauber is actually looks like a, uh, a paper wasp um, and it, uh, it's like it is a uh, in that wasp family and it uh, it has you know basically that little narrow waist and uh, and some types are are black and yellow so it does look like just like a uh, a wasp but the uh, these um, the mud daubers actually are only predators of spiders and they love spiders so what they'll do is that they'll go out and they'll they'll hunt for spiders and uh, and then they'll take these spiders back to their nest and uh, their nest are these little mud, uh, uh, like globs of mud that are usually attached to the walls. And so they'll, they'll sting the spider, they'll bring it back to the nest, and then they'll lay an egg on it, and then they'll seal that little cell up. And then the egg hatches and the larvae of the wasp then feeds on the spider and eventually develops and pupates and becomes an adult again. And so the mud daubers are just really incredible um, spider hunters. Well, I could see the confusion then among gardeners and, and homeowners who may see these little blobs of mud. They're usually underneath the eaves of the roof and you'd see them as you walk around the house on the outside and you think, well, what's going on there? And then you see a wasp going in and out and you might panic and try to kill it but before you do that i guess the good thing to do would be to get it positively identified right that's exactly it and and there was a case where a uh, actually a woman brought in um some of these wasps that she had uh, that she had actually killed with a fly swatter or spray or something anyways into her office and uh, and she wanted to know what they were because she said they were flying sort of in and in, around around her house and she was worried about them that they might attack people and uh, but it turns out that these were actually mud daubers so they're very very uh, gentle in the sense that they don't defend their nests and so they're not social like honeybees or wasps you know that'll build these nests and then if you disturb them they'll just go after you and sting you so they're not uh, they're not defend they don't have that capability of defending a nest and and so the uh, the mud daubers are actually uh, they're not social and so they're uh, they're just really uh, uh, gentle and are very important because they're out there hunting spiders 
And actually, there's a couple of different types that we have here in California. And one is this yellow and black mud dauber. They have a very, very long, thin waist. And then again, they, they make these uh, mud tunnels that are attached to walls and under eaves. There's another one that's a, the blue metallic mud dauber. It's absolutely my favorite. It's so beautiful. You know, they're about maybe a half inch long. And those uh, metallic blue mud dauber wasps only hunt black widow spiders. And that's their favorite prey. And, uh, and I remember accidentally knocking down one of their nests and the thing hit the floor of my garage and shattered. And there must have been a hundred black widow spider, spiders that were in there, just tucked in there. And, uh, and, and larvae of this, uh, the blue mud dauber wasp that was, uh, that was feeding on those black widow spiders. So I have a friend actually, and her father used to leave a little drippy faucet outside at their farm for mud daubers to have mud to make their mud tunnels. And she says, this friend of mine says that she never had black widow spider problems at her home and on her ranch because her dad left a little leaky faucet, which uh, which allowed the, uh, the, the mud daubers some mud to make their mud tunnels and hunt spiders. I could see how that could cause uh, a lot of fear in some people who went to knock down with a putty knife one of those mud dauber <laughs> nests and it fell open and there's all sorts of spiders in there, black yeah. widow spiders perhaps. But I, I, I guess in this case, though, by the time they're in that nest, those spiders are paralyzed. They are. So actually these wasps, that, that, that they actually will grab a spider. So they hunt spiders. They're always on spider patrol and they'll grab a spider and they'll sting it and inject a venom inside that uh, that basically just paralyzes the spider. So uh, so I was really alarmed at first too when I broke open a nest and there were like a hundred black widows in there. And uh, but then I noticed that none of them could move. They were just they they were just paralyzed. And so so again, so you're not going to be stung by these wasps because they don't protect nests. And then you're not going to be be bitten or stung by the spiders because they they're paralyzed and they they can't move. So uh, so it's actually a win-win situation for all of us in terms of well, except for the black widows, of course. But uh, for for all of us, you know, of having with having these wasps around in terms of protecting us from uh, from some of these very venomous spiders. And again, I guess those spiders are in that nest for a very good reason, to feed the young wasps. Right, they are. So uh, so these wasps, each wasp will go out and maybe, uh, maybe hunt, uh, say, uh, uh, 10 spiders and they'll bring it back to their nest and they'll, uh, they'll just pack that nest with, the, with spiders. And again, they're laying an egg on that nest. And when the egg hatches, you get a larva and the larva then just feeds on those on those spiders, and uh, and once it uh, reaches a certain stage, then it'll pupate, and then it'll emerge, it'll turn into a, an adult, and then it'll chew its way out of the cell, and then repeat that cycle. So you might have, you know, you might have a good 10 to 15 cells per um, per mud, um, you know, glob of mud, and uh, and then you multiply that by 10 to 15 spiders, you know, per per cell and then you get you know each of those uh, globs of mud could easily have several hundred spiders in it so they they really do look unsightly and you just think yuck i don't like that but uh, but uh, but know that uh, that maybe in certain places that uh, that you that it, it would be good to um, 
to kind of uh, learn to live with them because uh, these uh, these wasps are, are definitely important for uh, for helping to control spiders. Can you relocate that nest to some other place and what would be an appropriate place? So I think you can. I think you can actually, you know, maybe try to, you know, if you're not, if it's like if it's in an area where you just can't tolerate it and uh, it looks too unsightly that I think you can gently like use a little um, like a butter knife or a, yeah, a spatula and just sort of gently pry it off and then and then maybe move it to uh, to some place uh, away from uh, you know from from where you don't want it say perhaps in maybe in a garage or a shed or a barn or something like that definitely I think you can move them around so you don't have to remount them under an eave somewhere I don't you know if I if I don't like something and if I really don't want it like right above my door then I might just sort of gently uh, uh, pry it off and then uh, with gloves and then just uh, you know and then just carry it over to uh, to a shed and then I leave it on a windowsill or on top of a beam you know even though I'm in a radio studio I, I can hear the shouts of some of our listeners who are saying no no spiders are good they're good guys <laughs> right I agree they're hunters too and so everything has their place in this world um, but it's the uh, it's really the black widow spiders that uh, that that I, I worry about you know because they they actually you know they 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 hide in little cryptic areas and they always sort of surprise us and so you know that they're there if they have a really tacky web but but you know it's just they have their place out in the country and and uh, you know away away from houses but in our houses, you know, if uh, if kids, t- you know, you don't want kids or pets or anybody to uh, to get uh, to get stung by them. So, um, so while spiders are beneficial, certainly out in our garden, that around, you know, in and around our houses, that we often, you know, don't want them because they, uh, you know, some of them are poisonous. Well, just the black widow spiders are, and uh, and these uh, these mud dauber wasps are not poisonous at all. They don't sting, and so it just provides a. Uh, a way of controlling the uh, the spiders in and around your house where you where you just you know don't don't lots of us don't want to live with them and especially that blue mud wasp adult who goes after black widow spiders i'll post a picture of it at the get growing with farmer fred facebook page so, so you can see it in its beauty and and, and cheer it on when it's at work exactly exactly that don't don't get worried it might you know when you're if it's around and you and you sort of get a little close to the, your, the nest it it might kind of buzz you, but it's not going to sting you. I think it's, you know, everything gets a, a little territorial when you get too close to their nest, but it's not going to go and attack you or anything. And it's much better than having a, a black widow spider that uh, that's lurking in your garage. The mud dauber wasp, it's on your side. It's working for you. All right, Rachel Long, farm advisor based in Woodland. Thanks so much for telling us more about the mud dauber wasp. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.